You are listening to a message from Shorebreak Church's Gatherings by Travis Scott. You can get connected with more content at shorebreakchurch.com. Well, what up, guys? Aloha. We're stoked to have you guys here tonight. If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 2. For those of you guys who are new, uh, if you want to know what we're about, we're about Jesus and we're about this book, uh, the Bible. And so as you're turning to John chapter 2, I wanted to give you guys a few updates on what's happening with us as a church. Some of you guys have been in the loop. You kind of know what's going on with uh, the status of as we're searching and looking for a worship leader. And we actually have one. We have been praying through and it's been in the process of about a, a month that we've been asking God to really show us who we're to have for a worship leader. And we have Jarrett and his wife, Christine, who are going to be moving over here in a couple of weeks from California. And the, the, the great thing is he knows reggae, right? So that's awesome. Like we can glorify Jesus to reggae music and rock. And the great thing though, is him and his wife's heart is pure gold. They love Jesus and they're ready to be here and to serve. So with that said, if you got some skills in the music category, um, you know, and, and you feel gifted and you want to serve, uh, we have uh, some openings as far as playing in a band. So come talk to us after we'll hang out. We can chat about it. And uh, one more thing too, uh, just to announce is this last Saturday, we did our first outreach. You could say our first, uh, practical way that we could show the community that we want to serve them. And this last Saturday, we, it's called Give Back. And what Give Back is, it's us saying, hey, Jesus came to serve. So he did. John, or Mark 10 said, I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And so the idea is that as we are here in the community, we're not just here for the community to serve us as consumers, but we are here to serve this area. And so we're going to be doing more give back events. And so you can find out more about that at the end of this service. And you can talk to Aaron too about that. But you know, when you're a young boy, you do some of the stupidest things ever, right? Now, if there's a young boy in here, I know I just offended you, but I can say that because I, at one point in my life, was a young, stupid boy. Honestly, I really was. I was crazy. And, and uh, one evening on a Friday night, with a few of us boys, we were hanging out in our friend's backyard. And now this was a nice neighborhood, okay? It was like nice. And we were hanging out there and we just kind of doing what boys do, right? Just chucking rocks and having some fun with our friends. And at the street below us, there were, there was this party that was happening. And so at the party, at the street below us, we're like, well, you know, we can kind of see what we can do, create some mischief or whatever. And so what we decided to do is, uh, well, the, these girls were hanging outside of the house and they started talking the smack on us. And we're like, no, this is not going to happen. So we did what any mature boy would do. We went to the refrigerator, grabbed some eggs and went out to the backyard and just started chucking these eggs at these girls. I mean, if they're going to talk smack on us, like, we'll, we'll, we'll show them. You don't do that to us, right? And so as we're throwing eggs at them and they're talking and smack, and then one of my friends is like, you know, that's just not enough. Like, we need to do some more damage. Now, mind you, at this party, this was like a nice neighborhood. So there were limousines out, like a, a few limousines, Mercedes Benz, BMWs. I mean, this was like full on nice party. And no wonder the parents had kicked the kids out, these girls out, because they didn't want them in the party. And so it's like, well, eggs aren't enough. So what are we going to do? Well, one of my friends grabbed some sticks. 
and just start chucking sticks down at these girls. And we never hit them at all. But I know you're like, you're judging me already. Like I've, I've, I'm clean, man. I've repented from that. I would never do that again. If you're a girl in here, you're like, what, what is he going to do next? You know, but it was like, well, sticks aren't enough, right? You know, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, what does my friend do? He goes and grabs this massive rock. And at this point, like some discernment started kicking in. Like maybe this is actually isn't a good idea. You know what I'm saying? Not a good idea. So he hurdles this rock down the hill. Obviously, I don't know what he was thinking because the girls were way too far to hit. And I would never want to hit a girl with like a boulder, but it didn't even reach that. It actually went through the windshield of one of the limousines. Alarm starts going off. The girls are screaming and panicking. And all of a sudden, the parents and at this party, we kind of crash this party because the parents rush out. The people of the party rush out. There are eggs, sticks, and a rock through the windshield of this limousine's car line that's going off. And it's like, so what happens next? We run. <laughs> we just split. We run. We were out of there. I mean, we full on crashed that party and the adults came out and I don't know what happened next, but we were out of there as quickly as possible. We've called our message tonight. Jesus crashes a party. Jesus crashes a party. Now he didn't use rocks, eggs, or a stick, but he did use a whip and he uses himself to crash one of the biggest parties that would happen yearly in Israel. Now, last week, we talked about how Jesus performed his first miracle. He kind of subtly launched his public ministry. And what did he do? He turned water into wine. Now, that's kind of like a good thing to build his PR. He's like, well, I'm going to do this kind of subtle thing at this party. And we even call their message, Jesus likes to party, because true story, he does. Jesus knows how to throw the best parties. Jesus is the author of fun, not Satan. But if last week's message was Sadie Hawkins dance. This week is a full on raging mosh pit. It gets crazy. And the parties have continues and go on, but only this time the tables have turned quite literally. And like we've said before, whenever Jesus shows up, when Jesus shows up at church, when he shows up at a wedding, when he shows up anywhere, are things ever the same? Do things get more boring? No. Things get more wild when Jesus shows up. Things are never the same. If you have have a Bible, John chapter 2 verse 12 is where we're going to pick it up. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and with his brothers and his disciples. Wait, Jesus said brothers really quick? I thought he was the only son of God. Well, he was the only son of God, but not the only son of Mary. Mary didn't stay a virgin forever to the delight of her husband, Joseph, right? It's like, oh, the Virgin Mary, we gotta, no, she was a virgin for a certain amount of time and then she had children. And the cool thing really quick here is that one of Jesus's half brothers was James, who wrote the book of James. Pretty awesome. Now at this point though, none of his family or his brothers actually really believe that Jesus is in fact God. And then we can talk about that at another time, but so they're down at Capernaum and they stay there for a few days. Then the Passover, verse 13, of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Let's have a word of prayer. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be here. We ask that you would speak to us and we know 
that your word is alive and then it's sharper than a two-edged sword and then it, it cuts and it divides and and last week it was a sweet message seeing how you turned water into wine and wine symbolic of of joy this joy that you give us that Jesus you don't just save us but that you give us joy and not just joy but good joy abundant joy but this week we're going to be talking about things that are going to cut to our hearts so I truly do pray that we would be attuned to, to what the work of, of you, Spirit, want to do in our lives tonight. Thank you for those that are here who have taken their Sunday night of all the things they could be doing, but they're here to study and to see you. So we thank you for this time that we have in your word. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over a million people would have been in Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. Now, sometimes when we think of a feast, we think of Thanksgiving. We think of crazy Uncle John coming over or whoever, and it just gets awkward and family drama happens. And that's kind of what we think of a, of a feast. But the Feast of Passover was a big celebration. I mean, this was a party. And it was a huge party. It was the biggest party that would happen at this time in Jerusalem. There would be over anywhere. The lowest would be about a million people, upwards to 2.5 million people going to the city of Jerusalem. Like that's a lot of people, right? I mean, it's a big party. 1.5 million people to, or 2.5 million is a lot of people. And this was a celebration, Passover was, of God saving and redeeming his people when they were held in captivity in Egypt, right? They were held in captivity in Egypt. And then God comes and he sends a man to set the people free. But then he uses that man to bring them out of bondage. They cross the Red Sea. They part, the, the Red Sea is parted and they cross that into their freedom. And so that's what they're celebrating. They're celebrating this Passover when God passed over and killed the firstborn. But those who were covered by the blood of the lamb were spared from death. And so what they would do is before they would leave home, if, if you were uh, within the Hebrew culture, whether you lived in Jerusalem or not, people would travel from everywhere to go to this huge party. This was like the Super Bowl of parties. This was a massive party. But what you would do is your family, they would stress out before they would go. You know, the, the parents would be like, oh, running around. And we got to get the house perfect. There can't be any leaven in the house. No, the reason why they were really obsessed about making sure there was no leaven in their house was because in the Bible, leaven, modern day yeast, is symbolic for sin. Symbolic for sin. So, well, you know, I, I don't know much about baking. In fact, I'm the worst chef you will ever meet. I burn Pop-Tarts for real. Like that's about what I can do. But I do know this, that you throw a little bit of leaven in, a little bit of yeast, and then your bread puffs up. I attempted to make bread one time and I made a potato chip. It was a charred, flat potato chip. But you think of, of, of like leaven, or if there's no leaven, unleavened bread is like a pita bread. It's like a, a tortilla. And so they would make sure that there was no leaven in their household outwardly. So they would make sure that they would be not puffed up in sin, but humble to prepare themselves to go worship at Jesus or at, in Jerusalem at the temple there. So they would cleanse their home. Now, after traveling many miles to Jerusalem, where they would arrive was in the court of the Gentiles. That's where they would go to first, was the court of the Gentiles. Now picture this. You're finally arriving there with your family. There are millions of people here, all right? Sometimes when we picture the Bible, you think of like 
hillbilly town, nobody there. Now that's where Jesus was from for sure, but that's not Jerusalem. This is a bustling, crazy city. I mean, there would have been noise, there would have been animals, it would have smelt funny, people would have been frustrated because you couldn't find a parking spot for your animals and you had to go in and, and talk to the, to the priest there. And what they would demand was that you first up front, you would go there and they would want to say, hey, you know, you're, you, we can't use your money. You need to exchange your money. So you would exchange your Roman currency for the shekel that they used in the, in the temple there. And in the process of changing money, they would jack, the priests would like jack up the prices. Hardcore. I mean, they would just jack them up. You know, you, when you travel, I mean, we all have traveled, I mean, I'm sure at some point on airplane and you're at the airport and you, you forgot a water bottle and you go up and you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm really thirsty and I forgot my water, but like, how much is this water and this, this cracker here? And like, $500. You're like, dang it. Guess I'm not getting the water bottle. They jack up the prices. They raise the prices. In fact, these priests at the temple would exploit prices so much that, that a normal cost of a pigeon or, or a lamb or an oxen, which was, was used at this time for animal sacrifices, would be marked up 20 times. I mean, they would jack up the prices. I mean, they were stealing from you. And they, it's not like they had the comma Ina discount, right? Like, hey, you have comma Ina for people who live in Jerusalem? Nope, no discounts, no nothing. You paid for it. Now, just to pay for the admission fee to be there, you had to be 20 years or older to go. You had to be 20 years or older. You would pay your own admission fee. Now, imagine this. It would be about, you know, today's equivalent would be a paycheck or one week's worth of pay. So half of your two weeks paycheck, you would pay to be there and to, to Jerusalem, just like the entrance fee. Like you go to Disneyland every year, they raise it, the prices higher and higher. It was expensive. But not only that, since you're in Jerusalem, you're away from home, you're taking time off work so you don't have your income. I mean, so you are paying. On top of that, as a Jewish male over 20 years old, you would be paying your tithe regularly to this thing too. So I mean, this is getting expensive. This is costing you. And not only that, you couldn't use your money. So you had to go, like an arcade, you guys know when you go to an arcade and, and they give you this like worthless money. I mean, and then you never use all your money at the arcade. You always find them in your pockets later and you go home. It's like, what good is that money? It's only good at the, at the, at the temple. And that's what they were forced to, they, were, they had to use this money. But if you're taking notes, write this down. This was mandatory for all males. It's mandatory for all males. Males had to do this. You're like, well, why is that important? Because males were supposed to pick up the slack at the work of the temple. It was the dude's job. It was the man's job. See, men then, if you were a Jewish guy, 20 years of age or older, you were required to go to the house of God. You were expected to go to the temple. Now today... Most men want nothing to do with the house of God. Why would, we go to, why would we go to the house of God? Now, to say this though, the least, men were apathetic then. They were, they were apathetic then, and men were apathetic now. See, men were required to go to church then, but it's not a requirement today. It's not like the police are going to knock on your door like, Hey son, why weren't you at church today? You know, that's not going to happen. No one's going to do that. No one cares. But just as men were apathetic then, men are apathetic now when it comes to God's house. And I think part of that is because culturally as men, we have been set up to play in life. 
You know, when, when, I was, when I was younger and my wife and I, we were dating and then we got engaged and I would have Christian men come up to me and say, really, you want to get married? You're young. Why would you get married? Wouldn't you want to put off the respons- those responsibilities? Why don't you just play for now? I mean, it's so much more fun. Just go travel. You know, don't, don't get rooted. Don't take on responsibility because real men, that's what they do. They play. It's like, really? Real men play? They sell out for a few bucks, but it's true. I mean, I had men in church saying, why would you want to get married? Why would you want to take on that responsibility? You should go, why don't you get that truck that you've always wanted? It's like, really? You want me to go take out a loan to get a truck to be in debt? Because that's being manly, right? I mean, I have this massive truck, but I'm still living at my mama's house. That's manly. You see, culture sets us up to play, whether it's trucks, whether it's porn, whether it's hookah, whether it's video games. Us as men, we've been told, no, 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 responsibility. No, you push that off. You want to be a man. You play. That's what what you do. And when it comes to church, who is calling out these men to rise up to be better than that to be more like Christ and to put away childish things I, I have a bunch of friends who I went to youth group and I grew up going to church and honestly they're living like hell right now it's like, what, did, what did the church miss between that now I will say this ladies if men started acting like men and they viewed you instead of like a piece of meat like a sister in Christ pretty sure you'd be okay if we had a focus on challenging men to be like Christ. You know, if you're single and there's another single guy in here, it's like, hey, I mean, maybe, you know, something could come out of that, right? And, you know, and the idea is that, man, we, when men lead, women follow, and, and women, you know you want men to rise to the occasion. You're not going to go date a dude who has a loan for a truck who's still living at mama's house. At least I hope you aren't, and some, some unfortunately do. And you know, when I was late in high school, I was struggling with decisions of what I was going to do with my life. And God, what do you want me to do as a man? And I just screwed up and I had made some bad decisions in a relationship. And asking for my dad advice, as I was in this transition between boy and man, my dad would always ask me to turn to 1 Corinthians 13, 11. And he'd say, Travis, read this to me out loud. And so I'm going to read it to you men in here. And fortunately, there's a lot of young dudes in here, which I think that's awesome tonight. I'm stoked at that. But I'm going to read this to you just like I would read it to my dad. And it says this, 1 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought like a child and I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I pushed away. I threw out my childish ways. I was like, I'm a man now. I'm not a boy. I'm, I'm not here to play. I'm here to serve. I'm not here to, to take. I'm here to give. This isn't about me. See, masculinity is not defined by manliness, but by godliness. That is how ma- masculinity is defined. Not by manliness, but by godliness. And honestly, guys would rather play than go to church right? They'd rather work on the bike, watch the game, than go to church. Now, I'm not saying about you men in here, but we can think of a majority of men who would never want to be here tonight. Because they'd rather surf. They'd rather watch the game. They'd rather sit on the couch and do absolutely nothing. 
See, it's, it's, it's easier to play like a child than to be a man. And, and talking about men going to church, I like what David Murrow says. He's a pastor talking about men going to church. He says this, men regard going to church like a prostate exam. It's something that can save their lives, but it's so unpleasant and invasive, they put it off. Others see worship service as their weekly dose of religion, like a pill they have to swallow to remain healthy, but not something to look forward to. So men avoid church altogether and they suffer for it. So let me just say this to us men in here. Now, if the Shorebreak Church, if this is, if you're checking it out, this isn't your church by all means. This doesn't really apply to you unless you want this to become the place where you go to church. But I will say this. We want to be a church that challenges men to become like Christ. We want to be a church that gives men vision to raise up men to be leaders of community groups. I mean, we want to see community groups in Captain Cook and Waikoloa. We want to see churches grow out of this. And it's like, dude, you just started. I know. Yes, we did. But Jesus started with 12 dudes. There's more than 12 young dudes in here tonight. I mean, Jesus has a plan for us men. And I think part of it's, guys like, why would I want to go to church? There's no vision for men in the church, right? We sing these songs that are super feminine and there's flowers on stage and we don't I have no, no, I'm not saying flowers are bad. If you've been to a church with flowers, I'm not dissing on them at all, all right? Flowers are cool. They smell great. But I'm just saying, dudes don't, I know, like flowers? Why are there flowers in the church? I don't get this. I think if we challenge one another to become more like Christ, living for God's pleasure, not for our childish play, we will see revival. I really believe that. Kona won't be the same. We won't be the same. See, the men in the temple were supposed to do the heavy lifting. They were supposed to do the heavy lifting, which meant according to Deuteronomy, that before they would go travel in to Jerusalem, that they would have to raise an animal, whether it be a pigeon or a dove, an oxen or a sheep. They would have to raise this spotless firstborn animal and bring it to the temple. Now that's a lot of work, right? Traveling is a lot of work with, with animals. I mean, you hear these horror stories of people trying to get to the island with, with, with their animals and their dogs like in, in quarantine for like three months before they can, I mean, it's just a mess. And it wasn't any different then. See, some people, when they travel from their home into Jerusalem, they would travel 15 miles, 20 miles, 50 miles. Some would travel over 100 miles just to be there on foot with animals. And it's crazy, okay? When we go to the airport, my wife and I, we have three boys. When we go to the airport, it's crazy. People hate us in the security line. They open up a whole new security, like they'll open up a whole new checkout area and we own the whole thing. I mean, people are like, all right, come over here. And, and then kids are puking. Last time we were going through, a kid, you know, one of our kids puked and, and we're dropping stuff. And it's just like a mess. And people are like, no one will stand behind us in the security line. It's awesome. Like we own it. Now it's an inconvenience, right? Now think, now think about this. Traveling with animals is totally different, but then you're on foot and then you're having to keep the spotless animal perfect. It means a lot of work. See, men were supposed to raise and do the dirty work, but it became an inconvenience for men to do this. That's why they sold the animals at the court of the Gentiles in the temple. That's why they did that. See, the idea of sacrifice is that it was, some, it was something that was supposed to cost you. You would feel that sacrifice when it left you. 
So instead of doing work, they got apathetic. These men became lazy. Hey, you priests, why don't you just, you do the dirty work for us, right? You guys serve the community. You guys do your thing. You got the job title. We'll sit back and we'll have you do the dirty work. And truth be told, people are always looking for a shortcut. They really are. I do it myself. And this, this honestly, this, this whole message and this idea that the men were supposed to really do the heavy lifting. I have to say, I've been looking at my own life. It's like, God, do I really do the heavy lifting? Do I really sacrifice? I have to ask myself those questions because we're always looking for a shortcut. Proof of this, go to the grocery store, grab a box of Pop-Tarts, and look on the instructions. There are microwavable instructions on the Pop-Tarts. As if 30 seconds in the toaster doesn't char them enough, all right? It's like, oh, I mean, we want a shortcut? We'll microwave them for eight seconds or some ridiculous number. It's like, really? We are always looking for a shortcut. We really are always looking for a shortcut. I mean, I had dudes and, my, you know, men come up to me, ask me in church, the church that I started before, it's like, hey, man, I want to grow, but do I really have to read the Bible? It's like, yeah, you have to read the Bible if you want to grow. Like, faith comes by hearing. You're in, yes. Stop trying to take a shortcut. And that's what we do very often. But Jesus never said following him would be easy, did he? It's like, well, yeah, he said, you know, follow me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Okay, yes, it is in a sense because we don't have condemnation anymore. But there is work. There is sacrifice in following Christ. See, some people want to worship at their own convenience. I see two problems happening here. I'm sure there's more, but two problems that I really felt like the Holy Spirit wanted to bring up to our group tonight here is this. The first problem is that, like we've already mentioned, people were apathetic in their worship. They didn't approach the house of God with reverence. Right? We'll talk about that in a little bit. But the second problem is this. The priest worked the system to their own advantage. And the parallel between these two problems, apathy and selfishness, is this. The biggest problem is people worshipped self. I mean, they came to the house of God and they were worshipping self. And I have honestly had to ask myself that question when I go to church. Like, why am I here? Now, let me just say, we're glad that you guys are here, but we have to honestly, like, why? You know, and it's like, man, I, are we worshiping ourselves? And that's something that God has just been. I mean, for a young church plant, this message is like guaranteed. I mean, pastors are afraid to talk. It's like, you want a good message to shrink your church? Yeah, preach this one, right? But that's not us here. We just go for it, okay? Next week, we won't see you. No, I'm just kidding. Hopefully, hopefully that's not true. But see, everything that they were doing was supposed to be about God and the house of God, but then it became about themselves. They would do their best before they would leave for home. Like, all right, make sure outwardly, oh, there's no leaven. Make sure everything's perfect. We've got the spotless lamb. Or no, nope, we're, we're slackers. We're lazy. So we don't have the, our spotless animal. We're going to go to the temple. And they were, see, Jesus could see through all this religion. He can see through all their activity. And Jesus wants them to repent from their spirituality and their religion. Because listen, not everything spiritual and religious is good. I mean, I've had people come up to tell me, it's, oh, bro, you're doing a church plant in Kona. That's sweet, man. Go talk to, and I won't mention his name because he's still here in Kona, but he's like, go talk to my brother, so-and-so. He has a spiritual healing bar. He makes these shakes and people are here, he- healed from their diseases. And I'm like, 
okay, uh, all right, that, uh, that's kind of crazy. I mean, I believe that Jesus can heal, but I, a spiritual new age healing bar, not so good spiritually. And what would Jesus do if he walked up to all this activity? How does he respond there are these people, apathetic in worship, and then you have these, these priests, these pastors who are in it for themselves. What does he do? Verse 14, this is awesome. It's so crazy what Jesus does. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. Really quick, pause. You don't sit in the temple, you stand in the temple. Today, it's different. Culturally, we sit. But in the temple, then you stood in reverence to God. They were sitting. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Whoa, what happened to meek, mild, humble, lamb-hugging, sweet, even-tempered Jesus? See, church has done a great job from the flowers to the cheesy songs of emasculating Christ. Jesus is ticked off. If you're taking notes, Jesus is angry. I mean, he is absolutely beyond belief, angry. Now, he did it all without sinning. I'm not saying he lost control. I'm not saying Jesus was like sinning and angry, but he, he was legitimately angry here. He's going off. Now, picture this, okay? Picture what's going on here. There are hundreds, thousands of people, millions of people in for the biggest party, the biggest city, and Jesus is here, and in the midst of it, he's walking around the temple, and he sees people, you know, selling these animals, money everywhere, papers flying, people there about themselves. The priests are supposed to be about God, and as he's watching this, he's walking around. And he frees a couple of animals and grabs the whip. Frees a few more animals and grabs the whip. So it's creating a whip. And then he goes into the center stage of the court of the Gentiles, bent with one knee, throws the whip up in the air and smacks it, cracks the air, probably like a 12-gauge shotgun, and everyone shuts up. All the money-changing stops, and all eyes are on Jesus. And what does Jesus say? He yells at them, and he's like, you've turned the house of God into a house of trade. Jesus is ticked off. This isn't flannel graph Sunday school Jesus anymore, is it? Jesus is angry. See, Jesus at this point is declaring war on the entire religious system. Bent with one knee, whip in the other hand, all eyes on him, what does he go and do? He literally picks up tables and throws them. Cracking the whip, animals flee, people run. He puts his hand on the table and throws the money and all their paperwork. That's hardcore. And the priests are just, what the heck is going on? This is crazy. And, and Jesus is doing this. And he is, de- one man, Jesus is declaring war on the entire religious system. He is taking on the ministry of the temple himself. 
Matthew 21, 13 elaborates and Jesus said this. He said, why have you turned my father's house into a den of thieves? The priests and the people were stealing what was rightfully God's, what rightfully belonged to God. If you're taking notes, write this down. Jesus was willing to fight for the glory of God. These people were there for themselves. Jesus was like, no, nope, no, nope, you, sh- you should be here for me. That's why our vision as a church, it's, it's super simple. It's this, amplify Jesus because it's about Jesus. It's not about us. Verse 17, what happens? One, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. Now this is a reference the disciples knew their Bible, referring back to um, Psalm 69, 9, which says, zeal for your house will consume me. And, and so what was Jesus passionate about? What made his blood boil? What was he stoked about? He was stoked for the, the house of God and the disciples remembered that verse in Psalm 69, 9. So let me ask you, what are you zealous about? What pops into your mind when I ask that question? What, what are you zealous about? Now, for me, it's like surf. I'm, I love surfing. Now, I'm, I should be way better than I am. Don't think I'm amazing. I'm not, but I love surfing. I really do. So what are you zealous about? The Lakers, your job, the paycheck that comes in, that girl, the Kardashians. I, I don't know what you're, I don't know what you're zealous about, but we are all zealous about something. Some, it could be money. It could be our, our image. Girls, are you zealous about your image? Is that what you think about? I mean, we are all zealous about something. Jesus was passionate about the house of God. He completely here declares war on the consumer. Straight up declares war on the consumer. Because see, the consumer views life through the lens of what's in it for me? How does it serve me? How do I benefit? They're here for me. They're here to serve me. See, a consumer will say what's in it for me. An authentic Christian will say, I'm in it because of him. Consumer is like, no, I, I'm here for me. And an authentic Christian is like, no, we're here because Jesus is here. Because the temple was a place where the glory of God dwelt, where his presence fell upon. Authentic Christian views life through the lens of, it's not about my needs now, but it's all of a sudden, it's, it's about others' needs. It's not about, is this thing good for me, but is this good for others? It's not about, how does it serve me, but... Now it becomes a thing of how can I serve others? Authentic worship is selfless. Authentic worship is the abandonment of self to the glory of God. That is what Jesus meant when he said, you must worship me in spirit and in truth. You know, consumers demand that others should compete for our attention. I read recently that there are 5,000 advertisements a day, if you spend time on the internet, that you will be exposed. 5,000 different types and forms of advertisements because people are demanding your attention. You only have so many resources and those resources that they have, they want that. And we've had this idea that we are the center of attention. That's what we've been trained to from from Starbucks to Nordstrom's to wherever you go shopping, Target. I mean, it's all about us. It's all about the consumer. It's all about serving our own needs. Consumerism gotten so bad. I, I'm not kidding. I recently read that 
a different, you know, launching of products like when Apple is going to soon release their new, they better release their iPhone 5 or I'm, someone's going to, I don't know. But, um, you know, at these different announcements and releases of products or when people are standing in line for big sales like a Black Friday, people now, consumers have gotten so bad, people will pay people several dollars an hour to stand in line for them and purchase something. It's like, shut up. No way. Really? We are that self-centered? That's crazy. But that's exactly what's happening in the temple. People are paying other people to do what they should be doing themselves. People got lazy. See, consumers take, worshipers give. Worshippers give. Now listen, it's not just true in the house of God at church. It's true with friendships. Some of you have friends that all they do is take, but they really give. Some of you, it's, it's a relationship with a boyfriend or girlfriend or even a marriage that God really wants to do a work on. I know that, that God has been even working on me in this area. It's like, man, am I a consumer? Am I a worshiper? Or with work, I mean, it's true in all these areas. See, whatever I pour my energy into is a reflection of what I'm truly passionate about. Whatever I pour my energy into is truly a reflection of what, I'm pa- what we're passionate about. Now, that could be true when we open up the bank statement. That could be true when we look at where you spend your thoughts, if we could do that, or where you spend your money, or where your time is invested, or where your thoughts dwell. It reveals what really you are zealous about. Jesus' zeal and compassion was consumed for the house of God. That's pretty awesome when you think about that. So what consumes you, though? What consumes you? What are, what are you passionate about? I pray for all of us that it would be about Jesus and about his church because that's what consumed him. Because truth be told, we are either consumed by culture or by Christ. We're consumed by something. We are always worshiping something. It's Jesus or it's self. That's what it comes down to. Pretty simple. Now, this does bring up a legitimate question. It's like, okay, well then, if it's not about me, I get that. You've made that point pretty clear. I feel pretty beat up now at this point. How are my needs met? Honestly, like, how are my needs practically met? I will say this. When Jesus is glorified in your life, all of your needs will be fulfilled. End of story. Because Genesis 1.27 says that we are created in the image of God. You were created in the image and in the likeness of God. And God is busy about the work of himself. So if you are created in the image of God, you are made to reflect that image to do everything to his glory. And so it's like, man, when you glorify God, you were actually doing fully what you were created to do, what you were meant to do. So your needs will be met in serving and lifting up the name of Jesus. But like taking candy from a kid, changing the channel during the game, or taking a bone from a dog, consumers, those who have buyer's remorse, are the ones, consumers are the ones who make the most noise when things are taken away from them. Look at verse 18 briefly. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show, for, show us for doing these things? The Jews were like, yeah, who gave you the authority to just come into our ministry, to come into our workplace and to do this? They were the ones who were making the most noise. Now Jesus catches them in the act of doing it. And you know, 
you know, they're like, oh, they're angry because like the drop in Facebook stock recently, they saw the zeros disaway from their paycheck and me. Tick, and you're like, yeah, Jesus, who gave you the authority to do this? Now, it's crazy when you think about this because it's like, what do they say? Did they say, dang it, man, we blew it. Like, it didn't even have to be Jesus, right? It could have been just some Joe Schmo going in there and just saying, you know what? Yeah, you're right. It could have been anyone who said that. We have made this about ourselves. What do they say? They're like, hey, Jesus, what authority? What, what, is, what, what are they asking Jesus? Or just give us a sign. They wanted Jesus to perform a miracle like a circus clown, just to perform this act, to perform this miracle, to prove his authority. And Jesus is like, you know what? Fine. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Verse 19 says this. Jesus said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus is like, okay. You guys want a sign? Destroy this temple pointing to himself. He's like, destroy me, mess me up. You want a sign? Kill me. And in three days, I can raise myself from death. You want a sign? That is your sign. Because only Jesus can do that. Only God can raise himself from the dead. That is the authority of Christ. And the guy, they missed it. They totally missed it. Jesus is like, my authority does not come from man. My authority comes from God. And oh, by the way, I am God because I can raise myself from the dead. That's Jesus' authority. And they missed it. Because look at at verse 20, 20, how they respond. What do the the Jews say? They said to him, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it. In three days, they thought Jesus was talking about the temple would be destroyed, which it wouldn't. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but didn't he raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Pause really quick for a moment. The disciples remembered what Jesus said about this three years later. So for those of you guys, we all should be, as Christians, in the word and praying every day. We have to be in God's word. Now, sometimes we get tripped up by what we don't know. But really, keep reading and God will reveal to you in time the things that you don't understand. That's what happened for the disciples. They didn't totally get it and see it, but it clicked three years later Verse 23, now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, the many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Okay, so the Jews were like getting tripped up about this temple thing. See, 20 BC, Herod the Great decided to launch this campaign to build his popularity as a leader. And part of that was Herod's like, you know what? I need to, to regain some, some kudos. I want to gain some kudos, some brownie points from the Jews. So I'm going to rebuild the temple. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to rebuild the temple. And so the Jews up to this point now, it's been, Jesus shows up. It's been even 46 years into, this, into the building of this, this project. And they would have spent millions. This would have been their life's work. And Jesus is completely throwing away all their life's work. He's completely just throwing it away because now at this point, now that Jesus is here, the temple is irrelevant now. The temple doesn't need to be there. 
A few notes about the temple. First thing about the temple is this. A temple is a place where God dwelled. Where the spirit of God was. But now that the word became flesh, Jesus was there. He tabernacled among them. There is no need for the temple because the presence of God was there. Second thing about the temple, the temple was a place where blood would be poured out for the purchase and remission of sins. Jesus is like, no, I'm going to pour out my temple for the purchase and for the remissions of your sins anymore. All this animal sacrifice doesn't need to happen anymore. It's irrelevant. Lastly, the temple was a place where people could connect with God. Think about this. All this was going down in the court of the Gentiles. That was a place where people could come to know God, where they could connect with God. See, it's through Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection that we are able to connect with God. Straight up, that's how we can connect with God because Jesus' temple tabernacled with us. See, this temple, guys, was merely a prototype. It was just pointing to Jesus. That's what the temple was there for. It's like, uh, here is Jesus. And at this point now, the temple is obsolete, outdated, irrelevant. And I think what upset Jesus more than anything was that this prototype had gone bad. This thing that was meant to point to God didn't point to God. It became about themselves. The Air, I recently read this week a report from Air Force officials. They had a new hypersonic jet. I don't know if you guys heard about this. That was thought to fly at six times the speed of sound. That's pretty fast. Six times the speed of sound. Three times faster than the Concorde jet. Able to go around the world in minutes. That's how fast this jet was. And so in the process of testing it, the Air Force reported that it crashed because of control failure. The unmanned aircraft experienced a fault just 16 seconds into its hypersonic flight. And the Air Force went on to release a statement after this, this, this nice aircraft, this unmanned aircraft had crashed. And they said that it was not able to maintain control due to the faulty control fin. And we lost control and it crashed. This is what blows me away, though. This project that they were working on, the Air Force, called the X-51A program, cost $140 million. I was like, wow, that's a lot of money. It's $140 million. See, this, this prototype that they were working on went bad because of control failure, and it cost them. It cost them. See, the priests had a white-knuckled grip trying to have control of the work and the temple, and that grip, that control failure would cost them. The thing that really belonged to God, it cost them. What did it cost them? Well, it would cost them the destruction of the temple eventually. This temple, Jesus would go on to prophesy later that, that there would not be one stone left unturned, that the temple would be completely obliterated. Their control failure cost them the destruction of the temple. To this day, to this day, the temple is, has not been rebuilt. The second thing it cost them was the murder and the death of God himself. That's what their control failure cost them. 
See, we all don't know the plans that God has for our life, but sometimes it's like, God, I want control of my life. I want to have it all together. I want to know the plans that you have for me. God, just let me know. I just need to know. And God's just like, no, just let it go. When you have control of your life, when you think you have your life, you really don't have it. Let it go. I am sovereign, God would say. I'm in control. You don't need to hold on to these things. See, life left up to you, you will run it to the ground. I will run my life to the ground if I am in control of my life. We are to let go what is supposed to be God's because he has a better plan for us. See, the priests were just supposed to let go what belonged to God's. Even in the stages of this church plan, I can honestly say, this thing is Jesus's. It's for him to build. This is his church. It's not our church, it's his church. Who are we to hold a white-knuckled grip like the priests did? See, his plan is better than ours. Isaiah 46.10, God speaking. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. That is God. Now listen, we might not get it all right now. In fact, maybe some of you guys are going through a really hard financial timer. You don't understand everything is happening in your life. You don't know the future. You don't know who you're going to marry. You don't know what your finances look like. You don't know how it's all going to work out. But I believe God is saying to us tonight, listen, you don't have the plans, but I do. You guys just trust him. God is good. You can believe God with your life. You can trust him with your life. Now, this is kind of like, well, how do we end up here? Talking about the priests and the temple and now we're talking about our own life? Like, what's the parallel? I don't, I don't really get it. It's this. It's because you, you are a temple. I am a temple. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians sixteen nine, talking to a church that was struggling with sin and sexual immorality. He says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God, you are not your own. See, since we are God's temple then, according to Paul, we all are temples, according to Jesus and according to Paul. And if Jesus was to walk through our temple, I have to ask, what would he do? Jesus was to come through our temple. What tables would he turn? What money would he need to throw? What animals would he drive out? Would he drive out apathy? Would he drive out self-worship? Would he drive out idolatry? Would he drive out sin? Would he drive out consumerism? I mean, Jesus has been driving so many things out of my life recently. I don't say this like I got it all together. I say this like, like I'm worse than you guys. Like God is just really working these things out of me. And you know what? It's painful. It sucks. I mean, it hurts sometimes, right? Whoever said going under the knife was fun and easy. We had a family friend recently who went under surgery and they had to do some surgery. And so you know what they did? They had to break all the ribs just to get to the heart. That's painful. And the priest can rise up inside of us sometimes and say, yeah, God, but what authority do you have to come into my life? Really, what's your authority? And Jesus would say the same thing he said to the priests. I am God. My temple, I know what you've been through and you need things to be worked out of your life. Jesus would say this, I bought you. 
I am God, and I rose from death. The crazy thing about 1 Corinthians 16, 19, when Paul would say, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? It goes on to say in verse 20, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. It's like, wow, I really am a temple. And God, you really do need to cleanse this temple inside of me. And it never, guys, it never feels good at the moment. It hurts, but it's necessary. Because God disciplines his kids. If you're taking notes, write this reference down. Hebrews 12, 6 through 9. I'm going to read it to you guys. It's a little bit lengthy, but I think it's so important. It says this, For the Lord disciplines those he loves. He punishes each one he accepts as his own child. As you endured his divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who was never disciplined by its father? See, if God doesn't discipline, verse 8, you, if he doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children's, it means that you are an illegitimate child. The King's James Version says that you're a bastard. You don't have a dad. And not only are you not his child at all, but for those, since we respect our earthly father who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of, our, of the father of our spirits and live forever? See, God doesn't drive out things because he thinks it's fun. It's not like Jesus was like weird and like, you know, going crazy and had this bipolar moment where he was like smiling, turning over the tables. He was legitimately broken. He didn't want to have to do that. Just like when my kids mess up, just like when your kids screw up or you screwed up as a kid. It's like, I don't want to, to, to discipline you, but I have to. I'm left with no choice. He does it, guys, because he loves us. He disciplines you. He's doing that work in your life. And if he's not doing it right now, it's on its way, okay? If you're his kid, that discipline is coming. He does it because he loves you. And listen, Jesus crashes a party because it's not really a party without him. We're thinking we're having a good time and this is great. And it's like, yeah, I'm getting away with my sin. It's I'm having a real party. And she's like, no, you're really not. Like, you're living like hell when you should be living to my glory. Because Jesus, like we talked about last week, is a life of the party. But the good news, guys, is, is Jesus, okay? The gospel doesn't condemn us. There is no condemnation in the gospel at all. There's no condemnation. But we have to lose ourselves so that we would be set free. We have to let Jesus do that work in our life. Matthew 10, Jesus said, Whoever finds his, his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, oh, you're going to find your life when you lose it? Yeah. Jesus loves you too much to let you get away with sin. That's story. Now you think, well, I've been, I've been getting away with sin. That concerns me then. Because either you're an illegitimate child, you aren't really his child. Now, I'm not saying you can lose your salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. Jesus does not lose those who he saves into eternal life. End of story, all right? Like you can't lose it. But if you're living for your own pleasure, you haven't been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Become a child of God. 
And it's like, now, I know some of you guys, you love Jesus, but like, listen, there's, there are people listening to this message. We're launching a podcast soon, and people listening online too. And for those of you guys listening online, it's like, you become a child of God. See, the parts of our lives that we need to lose will be found in him. So we need to repent. We need to turn from our sin, and we need to turn to him. And listen, maybe God too, if you are a child, if you've been getting away with sin, he's given you an opportunity to repent. He's been gracious. He's been long-suffering. Jesus is slow to anger. It's not like when he blew up on these guys and the priest, he's like exploded out of nowhere. You know, it was a process. And Verse 24 and 25 here in closing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust his people to them because he knew all people. It's kind of sad. He didn't trust himself to them. He didn't give himself fully to them. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus didn't believe in him. Because Jesus knows what's in man. We are jacked up sinners. There's nothing good in us. But, but God, who is rich in mercy, loves us and sends a son and gives us eternal life. And that is good news. And listen, it's not, it's like, oh yeah, well this, okay, this sounds like it's for an unbeliever. It's for every believer. The moment we become numb to the gospel is the moment we need the gospel. We need this. We need to hear this. What's like, well, yeah, but the people believed in him. Why didn't Jesus give himself to them? Well, even the demons confess and believe in the name of Jesus. But see, they believed in him, but they didn't believe him. They believed in him as an important guy, but they didn't believe him as God. Because Jesus could look directly into the hearts and know where they were at. They could confess and believe in him. See, he wasn't the Lord over them. He didn't have authority over their life. He wasn't God in their life. And he crashed his party because he loved them. Like Hebrews 12, 6 says, he loves those he disciplines. Isn't that great? Man, when, when, when the whip comes, like when that spanking comes, it hurts. It's painful. So necessary. And be encouraged with that, that man, when that happens, man, you are loved. And listen, if you're like not following Jesus and, and you're living for yourself and you're like, I'm getting disciplined by God. No, you're not. Because your own stupidity, right? That, that you're like honestly getting spanked by your own sins. That's just natural consequences of the way God created this, this universe. Well, after that crazy night that I had with my friends, you know, the eggs, you guys remember the eggs, broken limousine, all, all that stuff. After we had crashed that party, I was eating breakfast the next morning and sitting down with my dad and we're, we're just, he's like trying to talk to me. I'm like just, you know, punk kid. And he's like, hey, so how was your night last night? Fine. <laughs> right, typical answer. Fine, good. Anything special happened? No. <laughs> Not really. Um... Well, not, I'm not just kidding. As we were eating uh, our breakfast, there's a knock on the door. My dad gets up and walks over and I look and I see a man in black uniform with a star-shaped badge. And I was like, crap, dang it. This is not good. I think this is going in a direction. I did not foresee it going at all. And uh, my heart started to pound. And he was like, Travis, yeah, okay. He's like, Hey, son, come over here. And one of my dad's son, like I, when I was a boy, I, I mean, I, 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 I was in trouble. I was like, that was the end of me. And, 
And my dad's a fireman too in the city that I lived in. The sheriff just happened to be friends with my dad too. So that didn't help at all. It's like, dang it, man. This is just getting worse and worse. And so the cop tells me, he's like, you know what? You are responsible along with your three other friends for the damage that you did to those cars. Cars. Limousine, actually, really. I mean, and I guess, I, guess, I guess other cars got hit too that I wasn't aware of. So I'm like, stupid friends, dang it, those guys. But because I was there and I wasn't the one who chucked the rock, didn't matter. We all were responsible for the damage that happened. And he, and he told me I had to write a letter to the limousine company saying that I would take full responsibilities for the damage that I did to the limousines. And it was a Mercedes-Benz limousine. And I, I mean, I'm not, so obviously was, was pretty stupid then. I was bright enough to know that that was, man, this, this is going to be expensive. Oh, this is going to get expensive. Like, I am dead. Like, there goes my college fund. My dad actually told me, like, yeah, there, there, there you go. Yeah. What, and I was just, I would remember, I can remember checking the mail to see if that letter was going to come in that I had to pay the price for my stupidity. Fortunately, though, the limousine company absorbed the cost. And I was like, man, never throwing a rock or eggs at girls or any crashing any more parties like ever again. I was pretty slow, I know, but I mean, I knew that I didn't have to pay the price for my stupidity. Now, obviously the insurance company absorbed the cost, but still like that was really gracious of them because every, someone is paying for that. Someone had to pay. You guys, Christ absorbed on the cross, our sin and our stupidity. He did that. When we were still sinners and we were still spitting at him in the face, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that we would become the righteousness of God. Isn't that beautiful? So now we should respond as Christians and not as Christians in repentance and in thankfulness and response to the work that Jesus wasn't a consumer. What if Jesus came as a consumer and served like serving? No, Jesus came to serve others. I mean, that's how we respond. Let Jesus drive out those things that don't belong. Let the tables in your heart be turned that don't belong to be there. And it's like, man, this is like judgmental. This is like bringing, yeah, it, it is actually. First Peter 4, 7, Peter writes this, for it is time for judgment to begin at the house of the house of God? Because it begins with us. Well, what will be the outcome, Peter says, for those who don't obey the gospel of God? Well, judgment starts with us first. It starts in the house of God. And so as we, we move into this time of worship and as we close, just meditate on that, guys, that man, that that it starts with us and that Jesus likes the party. Totally, he does. And he came to give life, life more abundantly. But there are things that are in our life that need to be pulled out. They need to be etched out. Things that we've got a white knuckled grip on and God's just like, let it go, let it go, let it go. It's, it's okay, I'm, I'm in control. And so as we spawn to him in worship, let's give him everything. Let's pray. We hope that Jesus is doing a work in your life from the message that you just heard. We would love to hear how you were impacted and what was impressed on your heart. Share your story by emailing connect at shorebreakchurch.com. 
And if you don't know Jesus as God, Lord, and Savior, or you have more questions, send us an email to info at shorebreakchurch.com so we can get you dialed in with a free Bible and resources for your new relationship with Jesus and answer any questions. If you'd like to support the gospel going out through Shorebreak, you can click the Give button at shorebreakchurch.com. You can give a one-time gift, a recurring gift, or whatever God puts on your heart. Mahalo.